Let's open God's Word. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, if you would. It's good to be back with you. Last week, Walter did a very good job of taking us through uh, the second half of a conflict that opens that chapter up. Uh, The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, come up from Jerusalem uh, to the area of Galilee where Jesus has proven that he is no longer a local problem. He must be dealt with, and so the officials among the officials come up and they interact with him. And then last week, Jesus turned his attention from uh, the scribes and the Pharisees directly, and he began addressing the crowds, and he began addressing the real problem, which was the heart issue. And it was very, very helpful as Walter took us back to Isaiah to see once again uh, that this isn't a new idea. Uh, that God has always demanded and called for humility among those who would claim to come to him in worship. And last week, uh, as we saw that defilement begins not in what comes out or not what touches the exterior, but in what is already present in the heart. And that's a critical thing that we have to understand. That defilement begins in the heart. That sinful, uh, wrong, evil words come out of a sinful, fallen heart. That sinful, wrong, wicked actions are the overflow of a sinful, fallen heart. And if we frame it that way, then we understand that washing my hands before a meal, uh, it's really not that important. Because if it's a heart issue, then it's not something that I can wash away. And if it's a heart issue, it's not something that I can legislate through a group of rules or a a list of codes of conduct where I can somehow fix my way to it. If it's a heart issue, there's actually nothing that I can do about that on my own. If it's a heart issue, then I desperately need something else, some greater power, something outside of me to fix that heart. And that is what Christ offers. That is what the gospel offers. That is what the God's word has always promised. I will give you a new heart, that new covenant promise to remove the old stone cold dead heart and replace it with a transformed heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that is uh, tender toward what God has called us to be. But the question is, how far does that go? Who is that offer open to? I mean, it's one thing to call a group of Jewish onlookers to that new heart. It's one thing to call the scribes and Pharisees who had a familiarity with those promises, even if they chose to ignore them, to that. But what about the outsiders, the outcasts, those who would have no claim to these new covenant promises or any other covenant promises? And that's actually where we go today as we get into one one of the more difficult encounters in Matthew's gospel. If you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. We'll go through 28. That'll be our text for today. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. This is what God's word says. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let's pray. Lord, as we go through the narrative, we've been uh, impacted and we've encountered all kinds of different stories and 
uh, we've come to a very specific expectation of who Jesus is and how he responds to those in need. And Lord, today we confess that we come to a story that doesn't sound uh, like what we would expect. So we ask for your help. We ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word, that through the power of your spirit and the power of your word, you would help us to come to a right understanding of who you are. And then as we rightly understand you, that you would help us to respond in obedience. You would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, we can't do that on our own. Our hearts produce that which is not good. We need you to change our hearts, and then we need you to guide our actions. And so we ask that you would do that for us today. We praise you and we thank you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now, one of the things about studying the Bible the way that we do is we wind up being in one book for a long time, uh, maybe longer than some of you would like or anticipate. But one of the good things about working through the Bible the way that we do is that we really have to encounter everything. If I were to just go through and all of a sudden skip eight or ten verses uh, because I didn't like what they said or because they were difficult and I just couldn't get my mind around them, you would probably notice. So one of the blessings of doing things this way is that we're really forced to encounter all kinds of different passages, those that are easy and accessible, those that promise great blessing, those that are very encouraging, and those that have a way of stepping on our toes, of making us think, of even making us uncomfortable in some ways. This is one of those passages that is difficult. Uh, not particularly difficult in the grammar or the syntax or the way it's structured, not particularly difficult even in grasping the theological theme once we get to the end. It's just difficult because in this passage, the things that Jesus says, if we're honest, just don't sound very Jesus-like. And as we go through today, fair warning, I'm not going to resolve every tension within the passage, and I don't think I'm meant to, uh, so that's okay. But I do hope that as we come through it, as we look at the context, as we understand where this fits in the gospel and what he's communicating here, that we at least understand uh, the big, the broad why behind these things. So to do that, we have to understand kind of contextually and culturally and physically where we are. So we're going to open up with looking at an unexpected place. This whole uh, encounter opens in an unexpected place and then we'll be met by an unexpected person and finally we'll come to an unexpected profession. But let's look first uh, at the unexpected place and let's start with where they went. Understand that for the first 20 chapter, 20 verses in this chapter, uh, Jesus has been in and around Galilee. Okay, we're likely up by Capernaum and uh, Gennesaret up there, where the scribes and the Pharisees have come up from Jerusalem, from the south, to see Jesus in the north there. Look at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there. So when we're talking about Jesus going away from there, we're talking about Jesus moving out of that region of Galilee. He went away from there and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And you can see that map that's up right kind of in the middle of that map is the Sea of Galilee. And if you look on the north edge of that Sea of Galilee, that's where Capernaum is there. And that was kind of the base of operations, the hub there. And as the next arrow comes up, you're going to see the distance that they traveled to get to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's about 50 miles. In other words, it's a significant distance on foot. So they're going away from that area, away from those towns and cities in northern Galilee, and they're going up to the north, which is a very Gentile area. And that's what we kind of need uh, to see is that not only is this a distance physically, this is a distance culturally. We know how the Jews thought about Gentiles, don't we? Remember back in Matthew chapter 10, that as Jesus sends out his men to do ministry, he says, if anybody doesn't listen to you, shake the dust off of your sandals and off your jacket and move on. 
Well, that was how the Jews thought of Gentiles to the point where if they passed through Gentile territory, they had to wash their clothes to get every bit of Gentileness off before they went back into the covenant promised land. Those were the people that were outside. They were outside of God's people. They were outside of God's covenant. They were outside of God's promises. Everything out there was a contaminant that threatened to work its way into God's special place. Now, hopefully, after the last two weeks, you understand how absolutely ludicrous that is, because if the heart is the problem, then you bring sin right back with you, don't you? Because you bring your heart back into the land when you come there. But these are the people that are outside of the covenant promises. They were steeped in idolatry and wickedness and everything that the Jewish people would have thought of as distasteful and ultimately deserving of God's condemnation. Uh, but that's not all we know about it. If we've been around our Bibles for any length of time, uh, the names Tyre and Sidon are kind of familiar. That area of Phoenicia comes up in the Old Covenant. This is the place uh, where that evil queen Jezebel was from, where she brought her foreign pagan idols into the very heart uh, of Israel. We know that these are people who are frequently antagonistic towards God's people. But it's not all bad. The king of Tyre was a friend of King David's in Psalm 87. Psalm 87 speaks of Babylon and Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia as places that come to know the Lord. So while they're enemies of God's people and even the prophets talk about destruction and judgment that will come on these areas, uh, there's these hints of God's favor and even salvation coming to there. If we've been paying attention, and I know you have, then this isn't even the first time in Matthew that we've come on these names. Remember back in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is condemning those cities in Israel, many of them right around that northern area of Galilee where he's teaching. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. Why? Not because they were antagonistic, not because they outwardly hated him, but because they were apathetic to the gospel. They were apathetic to what he was doing. Love the miracles, no use for the actual message behind them. And what does he say? If the mighty works done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, if these things were done in this pagan Gentile area, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. And they'll actually stand up against you at the judgment. Now, we don't want to read too far into that, but how interesting that this action, this response, this interaction takes place in Tyre and Sidon as we go through the rest of the day here. So that's, that's kind of where they are and where they move to, but we have to also understand why it matters. Jesus is moving out of that area. He's moving out uh, of an area of conflict, not because he's afraid, but because he knows that they need rest and they need a time away. But why does it matter that they're going there? This is where we have to kind of set the context and the expectations of what we see in Matthew chapter 15, because who had Jesus just been interacting with? Well, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. He's kind of systematically dismantled this idea that being acceptable to, the, to God means keeping this external law. They assumed that if they had the right rules, and if they had enough rules, and if they held to those rules, then God must accept them. But that's not all. They also assumed that because of their DNA, because of their heritage, because they were sons of Abraham, that somehow there was some innate holiness within them that God had to honor. 
Now, I am not speaking of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. That is the other side of this. I'm speaking of their assumption that because we are Jewish, we must somehow already have a leg up on the competition, as it were. They prided themselves on the fact that they were in and the Gentiles were out. And you have to understand that that thinking was embedded very, very deeply in the culture, not just with the scribes and Pharisees, but with the people in general. There were God's people, and then there was everybody else. And the problem with that is that it ignores the promises that God did make all the way through the Old Testament. What did he say when he came to Abraham? I am going to bless you. I am going to give you a great name. I am going to give you land, and I am going to give you seed, children, descendants, and I am going to bless you. But not only that, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We see this expansion of God's blessings, even embedded in the Abrahamic covenant. You move forward to Exodus as the people are at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they're about to receive God's law that will call them out as separate and distinct among all the people of the earth. But they're called to be a kingdom of priests who are supposed to mediate those blessings to others as they see what God has done for Israel. You could go uh, to the prophets, to the prophetic writings, places like Zechariah 8 that talk about the nations coming and grabbing a hold of the garment of a Jew and saying, take me to your leader, essentially. Take me to your God. We see what he's like. We see what he's done. And so not only uh, does God's word continually give us this idea that God's salvation is promised to the nations, it actually says that the Jews were supposed to be an integral part of how that went out and how that happened. And in this context, we have people like the scribes and Pharisees who are not ignorant to that, but adamantly opposed to that idea. And now we have Jesus and his disciples, particularly those disciples, who are going to need to understand certain things about those promises and what that looks like. So now that we understand kind of this unexpected place where we're at, it's a different setting, it's a different culture, it's a different understanding from where we have been Now we can actually move in and begin to develop the narrative. Knowing the context helps us now understand uh, that we are going to meet with a very unexpected person. And look at verse 22 just to set it up. Before we even work through uh, what structures this, the unexpected person, it says, and behold. We're in the middle of a narrative and Jesus says, behold, or Matthew says, behold, look at this, pay attention. Something different is going to happen here. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out. Now, we have to stop there for a minute because this is not who we would expect to approach Jesus in this context. Jesus has gone up. Mark 7 says he's gone to a house and he wants to be quiet. He wants to be in private. He was uh, anticipating that people would not be there around him, although I'm sure and certain that he knows the ministry that's going to come. But this unexpected person comes. And if we're talking about the hierarchy of undesirable people, this woman is the polar opposite of the scribes and Pharisees. First of all, she is a woman who culturally was simply not seen to be on equal footing with a man. Not only that, but she is a Gentile. She's from that area. She's from the region of Tyre and Sidon, somewhere outside of God's covenant, outside of God's promises. But Matthew uses a very specific word here. He says that she is a Canaanite woman. And remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience an audience with Jewish expectations and Jewish understandings and a prophetic understanding, which is why he works in so many Old Covenant, Old Testament references into his writing. So when he says a Canaanite woman, that takes them back in a way that it doesn't do to us. Because who were the Canaanites? 
They were the people that possessed the promised land before God's people got there. And what was the command? When you go in, you wipe them out. They are a stain and a plague on the land. I am casting them out so that you might go in. And when you go in, do the whole job and do it completely and do not allow them to stay there. And what does Joshua's generation do when they go in? Not that. And it's this cyclical problem for the people as they were continually plagued uh, by these Canaanite uh, rebellions. You read the, the book of Joshua and it's this constant back and forth of antagonism uh, between the people as they mingle with them, as they intermarry with them, as they do everything that God told them not to do. And so God actually ends up using them as his instruments of judgment. Um, but this woman is one of those people. One of those people that shouldn't even exist anymore. And now instead of a quiet, restful retreat, you have a woman, a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman coming. And she falls on her face and she's crying out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This unexpected Gentile pagan Canaanite woman is a broken-hearted mom. And this interaction proves that it's structured around three very distinct challenges to that. Three responses that are not what we might expect. So let's look at the first challenge, and really the first challenge is that of silence. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. A broken-hearted and desperate mom comes to Jesus in what we would say is an absolutely appropriate and even theologically packed statement. Have mercy on me. She comes the right way, doesn't she? She comes humbly. She's not demanding anything. She's not bringing her own righteousness, her own standing. She's saying, I need mercy. Mercy, by its definition, recognizes that you need something that somebody else has that you don't necessarily deserve. She is in every way different than the approach of the Pharisees. But there's more. She says she calls him Lord. Not only is she humbled, have mercy on me, but she exalts him. He is the Lord, he is the master. He has the authority. There's even more, and she calls him the son of David. Now, we've heard that before. In Matthew chapter 9, we heard blind men cry out for mercy from the son of David. In Matthew chapter 12, we heard the crowds mingling and asking, this couldn't possibly be the son of David, could it? But remember, those are Jewish contexts. Those are people who had an expectation and an anticipation that a greater son of David was coming. This woman does not have any claim to any of those things. There is no expectation that a Gentile, there is no expectation that a Canaanite woman would come with an understanding of who the son of David was, and yet when she comes, she doesn't say, you couldn't possibly be the son of David, could you? She says, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. Not only does she come with an understanding of what that means, but she comes with confidence that he is that. That this is the promised one for God's people and that along with that come a certain set of power and ability and expectations. And here's, look at verse 23, because this is where it takes a very difficult turn. But he did not answer her a word. And if that doesn't stop you, then you have not been paying attention for 15 chapters. Because that does not sound like the Jesus that we've come to expect. 
How does Jesus respond to needs, even unspoken needs, as he comes on the shore and he sees the masses gathered before him? He is moved with compassion. The constant presentation in Matthew is that Jesus is the compassionate, kind shepherd. The one who cares about the multitudes. So why is he silent here? Maybe for the first time in the gospel, maybe this time he doesn't feel compassion. Maybe for the first time he's not moved. Maybe because she's a woman, Canaanite, outsider. But then we replay Matthew's gospel and that doesn't make sense. He's had compassion certainly on women. He's had compassionate on outsiders. He healed a centurion's servant. Way back in Matthew 4, we're told that multitudes, that many people actually came from this area down to Galilee and that he healed many of them. So there's already kind of an innate understanding in this area of who Jesus is. And he's responded favorably to them, so that doesn't make sense. Uh, Maybe this time he just can't bear the interruption. Maybe this time uh, the need for isolation and the need for rest was so great that he can't be bothered by this outside influence. But... We replay Matthew's gospel, and that doesn't make sense because the people's interruptions have never been seen as an interruption by Jesus. No matter how weary, no matter how full the ministry was, when the need comes, he routinely sets aside what he needs to do work on behalf of the weak and the lowly. No, I think that like everything else that he does, this has great purpose in it. I think this woman needs to understand certain things, to have certain things confirmed, and I think that the disciples need to understand and have certain things confirmed, and I think we'll see that as the narrative goes on. But she cries out for help, and the first answer, the first challenge really is silence. What's the second challenge? Look at the next part of that verse. He doesn't say a word. The rest of verse 23, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now get the picture in your mind. She's crying out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. And he's not saying anything. And because she is in a word persistent, she now turns her attention to the disciples and she moves the cry onto them. If I can't get to him, then I'll go through his guys. And they come to him and they say, she's driving us nuts. Send her away. Now, do they know that he can take care of her problem? Absolutely. They have seen him do it dozens, if not hundreds of times prior to this. So wrapped up in this is very likely, just take care of her problem and make her go. We need the rest. We need the break. Do it so that she can be gone. Well, they have more to learn than that. And this time Christ does respond, but he doesn't respond to the woman who continually cries out after her, after him. He responds to his disciples who are standing there. And what does he say? Look at verse 24. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And if we're honest, that's not better than silence, is it? In fact, that might be a little bit worse. Silence we might be able to understand. Just close your eyes, the problem will go away. But now he said, sorry, she's not a Jew. I can't do anything for her. And once again, that ought to create some friction in our mind. 
why would Jesus, gentle and lowly, make a statement that, that is so exclusive? Why would he limit the scope of his ministry? And this might not help resolve any of the tension in your mind, but understand that wrapped up in that statement, I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, is a tremendous amount of compassion. Only at this point, it's not directed at the woman, it's directed at the nation of Israel. Because here's, pull back, what is happening? By this point in Matthew, we know that the nation of Israel is actively rejecting their Messiah. They have moved from excitement to apathy, and now, as demonstrated by the religious leaders, there is an increasing amount of antagonism. We know from John chapter 6 that's paralleled some of these accounts that many have turned away and are no longer walking with him, even those that were once called his disciples. Not the twelve, but those that had followed him in general. The divide is real, and the distance is growing. And here's the question. If Israel rejects her Messiah, is God done? Have we finally come to the place where God has said of his people, enough, I have had it with you, you are no longer my people, and I have turned on from you. This, among many other places in the New Testament, reminds us that he is not. That he will remain faithful even when his people are faithless. I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. Understand, Jesus does not do ministry in the way that you and I would likely approach ministry. He doesn't do things the way that human reasoning says we should do them. When the Son of God comes, when the Son of God takes on human flesh and comes to the earth, He does not go to the greatest cities in the world. You realize that? He does not go to Rome. He does not go to Athens. He goes to Jerusalem. That's about as big as it gets, and it doesn't go well there for him. He goes to Capernaum. And he goes to Bethsaida. Why? Isn't the goal to get as many on board this Messiah train as possible? No. The goal is to do and carry out the will of the Father. And what did the Father say? That He would send the Messiah to His chosen people. That He would send the Son of David. Now what happens? He came to His own, and His own did not know Him. Does that rejection have consequences? It absolutely does. They are going to call for His death. Does He want the Gentiles saved? Absolutely He does. Once again, uh, these things aren't at war with one another. We know as we read through the biblical record that you have the chosen people of Israel and that you have a plan of salvation for the nations. Who is He talking to? He is talking to His men who He has already sent out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in chapter 10. But they won't always be there, will they? In his humanity, in the will of God, in faithfulness to his covenant promises, he has come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His ministry is restricted at this time and place. Theirs will not always be so. But in that statement, I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, what do they need to understand? That God's plans have not changed. 
that the rejection that they are experiencing is not somehow outside of God's will that he now has to make this uh, on-the-fly adjustment to. And so, yes, let's go begin collecting all the Gentiles that we can. No, the plan is not done. The Messiah will still do his work. Let's keep following the narrative, and we'll come to the third challenge. First, she comes and she's met with silence. So she begins to uh, nag the fringes, and the disciples ask, to send her away, and they're reminded of his mission, the exclusivity of his mission. Well, what's next? Well, you have to understand that she probably heard that response. There's no indication that this woman is very far away from Jesus at any point. In fact, I'm not sure what it would take to get her away, but they haven't found it yet. Jesus, help me. He's not going to say anything. You, you are a disciple of Jesus. Let me through. Let me to him. Let me go. Let me help him. Let him help me. I know that he can do it. Jesus, come and send her away. Do what you have to do. Make her go. And they're reminded of what his mission is. So she's probably right there. And as she overhears that, she comes and brings a request again. Look at verse 25. But she came and knelt before him. She has just said, she has just heard that he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Still, unfazed, she comes and she kneels before him and she says, Lord, help me. Still she comes, and still she's in this posture of humility, and now uh, worship. I want to make a connection here. We're going to be connecting chapter 14 and chapter 15 together a lot this week, and especially next week. It's some of the most beautiful parallelism in the entire gospel. Structurally, it is one of my favorite sections. More next week. But you have to understand here, she comes and she falls down in worship. Same word as the disciples when they were on the boat. There's a parallel being drawn here that as they recognize who Christ is, they fall down in worship. She recognizes who Christ is and she comes in the exact same way. What did Peter do when he came to the place where he was sinking in the waves and there was no one else? Lord, save me. And now out of the lips of a Gentile woman, a remarkably similar and familiar prayer, Lord, help me. That's it. I'm here. I'm humble. I'm exalting you. Lord, help me. And we think this has got to be it. That has got to be what moves Jesus off of this silence and off of this exclusivity. And now he's got to help her, doesn't he? And it makes the next verse even more shocking. She comes, she worships him. Lord, help me. And look at verse 26. What does he answer? It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He tells her a short and direct parable. The kids eat first. It would be wholly inappropriate to take what was dedicated to feeding the children and give it to the dogs. Now, some people try to dress this up. There are a couple of words for dogs. There's the word for kind of the mangy, mongrel dog, and there's like a little bit of a diminutive term for the little dog that would scamper around to get the scraps off the table. So maybe this is a nice thing to say. If I come to my wife on Mother's Day and call her a dog... Whether or not it's the big mangy dog or the little scrappy mongrel dog, she's not going to be impressed with either one of those. This is still not a compliment. We know that the Jews are fond of calling the Gentiles dogs. They don't mean it in a complimentary way. So why this? Why does Jesus come with a parable that tells her clearly, you are not one of the children And in fact, it would be inappropriate for me to take what is given over to the children and give it to you and your people who I just called dogs. And before we get to her response, 
But we have to wrestle with that. Why turn away someone who seems to come genuinely? Why turn away someone who seems to come with a right knowledge of who he is? Why turn away anyone who seems to want to follow Jesus? And again, we've got to back up and we've got to put this together. And again, this isn't going to resolve the tension in your mind yet, and that's okay. Live with this for a second. Jesus does not always give us the answer that we expect and anticipate. Jesus does not always give the right and ready and encouraging answer that we think he ought to. In fact, he's done it several times over the course of the Gospels. If we were to go to John chapter 3, we would see a man named Nicodemus come to Jesus at night. Jesus, uh, Nicodemus is a, a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. Now, if you're Jesus, is that a good guy to have on your team? I would think so. Because if you have Nicodemus on board, maybe the conflicts later on don't happen. And Nicodemus comes and he says, we know that you're from God because uh, you do what you do. So he says, how do, we, how do we reconcile these things? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. Not a clear answer. Not a systematically laid out gospel presentation. You must be born again, to which Nicodemus understandably says, I don't understand, how do you be born twice? Jesus said, you have to be born of the water and the spirit. Jesus, Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus' answer is, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand? If I told you about earthly things and you don't understand, how will you understand heavenly things? He doesn't lay out the ABCs and say, come on board. He challenges him. He makes him think about the truth of who Christ claims to be and what it would actually mean to follow him. Back in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is getting ready to cross the Sea of Galilee and a scribe comes to him. "Uh, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. What's Jesus' answer? Great, love to have a scribe on board. In a little bit, there's going to be tension between us. It'd be nice to have someone speaking on my behalf on the other team. What does he say? Foxes have holes, the birds have nests, the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Why throw a roadblock towards someone who seems to genuinely want to follow as we move forward? In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is going to be approached by a rich young man. What good thing do I have to do to obtain eternal life? Keep the law. Did it. Done. Good. Welcome on board. It's going to be nice to have a rich guy on the team too. No. What does Jesus say? Give it away. Take everything you have and give it to the poor. What does the young man do? He leaves sorrowful why turn away someone who wanted to be on the team who could have brought significant resources to the team why turn away someone of position why turn away a scribe an expert in the law why turn away anybody because jesus has never been interested in a shallow profession of faith he has never been interested in an easy answer to a light calling In fact, what did he say in the parable of the sower and the seeds? There's going to be some that seem to show this explosive early growth, but when anything difficult happens, they wither. They're gone. See, Jesus calls for a faith that is deeply rooted and sometimes difficultly tested. Not tested for the purpose of destruction, but tested for the purpose of proving the genuineness of the faith profession that's there. What did Jesus say in Matthew 12, 19, and 20? 
I don't expect you to have it memorized, but we read it from Isaiah at the start of our service. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. How interesting that immediately following that he says, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. But we've got to understand, Jesus knows her. She is not a bruised weed. She is not a faintly smoldering wick. Hers is a faith that is being tested and proven here. Hers is a faith that is demonstrating to the disciples what a genuine faith looks like. And our minds immediately go to, that's not fair. You can't make things hard for people. <laughs> how, how could you use someone else as an example in a way that makes it difficult for them? And then we read through the entirety of the book of Job, where God not only allows it, but God points him out to Satan. And what's the purpose? What's the point? What is the end result of that entire book after testing and after loss? Job comes to the place where he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But at the very end of that book, Job has a deeper, more intimate understanding of the God that he worships, a faith that is strengthened. And blessing does come, but it is a tested and proven faith. In the last few verses, we move from that unexpected place and that unexpected person, really maybe even an unexpected challenge, to now an unexpected profession. Because to come through all of that, I know that in my mind I would expect a certain response. She has just been told that the Jews take priority over her people. She's just been told in no uncertain terms that she is not one of the children. In fact, she is one of the dogs. And if I'm the disciples, I'm probably thinking, well, that's the end of that. Maybe even smiling a bit, saying, good, somebody's finally put her in her place. But not this remarkable woman. Her answer must have shocked them. And really, this is one of the best lines, the best responses in the entire book of Matthew. He says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And look at her response in verse 27. She said, yes, Lord. She doesn't get angry. She doesn't change her tone. She doesn't argue back and say, how dare you call us a dog? How dare you identify me as a dog, something less than a child? Uh, yes, Lord. I'll take that. I'm an outcast by every means. Uh, by every right, I'm not one of the children. I'm not born in the right place. I'm not born to the right people. I don't live in the right area. Yes, everything you have said about me, I will affirm that. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. If I am a dog, so be it. Let me eat what the children won't. If I know you as the master, and I do, then there is enough of an overflow not only to satisfy the children, but to satisfy those who are on the outside. She takes his parable and she extends it in an absolutely appropriate way. 
And again, now we set this in its biblical context, and it makes perfect sense. Weren't the blessings of Israel always designed to spill over to the nations? Yes, they were. It's built into that Abrahamic covenant. It's built into the law giving in Exodus as the people are told to be a kingdom of priests. It's built into the prophetic promises that the nations are going to come. And not only are they going to come, they are going to thrive as they come to the God of Israel when he reigns in his kingdom power. The nations have always been a part of God's plan. And she is right as she understands that the children will eat and be satisfied. The problem at this point is that the children have looked at the food and said, no thanks, we're not hungry. Now what happens when the children reject it? Well, we know that the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. That's that theme that Paul picks up on in Romans chapter 1. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. That's always been the plan. As they reject, the Gentiles, those who are not called not a people, are then called a people. As they reject, God's salvation moves out into the Gentile areas. She gives just this absolutely brilliant answer, this still humble answer, this still submissive answer, still recognizing that he is Lord, still recognizing that he is the only source of power and hope for her daughter. It is a remarkable answer from a remarkable woman. And of course, then we see the Lord's response, oh woman, great is your faith. And now the disciples have seen that this is what great faith looks like. It's not the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not the fickle responses of the crowds. It's not even... The wondering of the disciples or the fear in the middle of a stormy sea. What does great faith look like? This. Humbly approaching the right object of faith. Persistently coming with an understanding and a hope only in Him. Agreement even with God's plans when they don't align with what we think they should, but a submission to what He says will be done and how it will be done. What has Matthew done in this story? What has he done so far in this chapter? He's showed us that what some people call worship is ultimately worthless. He's shown us that sin comes from within. And he showed us that the blessings of God are poured out on those who have genuine faith because that is... He says, be it done for you as your desire. Her daughter was healed instantly. Remarkable power. Doesn't even need to be there. Just go. The demon is gone. She does receive the blessing. The power of the kingdom is going to come on those who have no reason to accept it, no reason to anticipate it, no claim by birth or training or heritage, but that the kingdom comes to those who by faith are made clean. Now, working through all of that, we can begin to see how this fits into the context as a whole. Because really, although this is different, this is very much the same as verses 1 through 20, isn't it? This is still a heart matter. That's, that's what we see in conclusion here. This is still carrying on that idea that worship is a matter of the heart. What hearts have we seen over the last two weeks? How do the Pharisees come? Angry and antagonistic. Convinced of their own right, their own worth, their own holiness. How does this woman come? In humility. In faith. How do the Pharisees respond to truth? What did the disciples say last week? Uh, Jesus, you know that when you said those things, you offended the scribes and Pharisees. When you told the truth, they were offended. How does she respond when Jesus tells the truth? I came only to the lost sheep of Israel. Lord, help me. 
It's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Okay. Then allow me to be satisfied with the excess as you would a dog. I don't deserve it. I can't demand it. So let me have the crumbs. Because I know enough about you to know that even the overflow of your power is more than enough to take care of my need. And guess where we go from here over the next week? Hopefully. What does the overflow of the kingdom power look like? What do kingdom promises to the Gentiles look like? If the dogs get the crumbs, what's the hope? A couple things for us to think about as we leave. First of all, we've got to think about the Jesus that we expect and anticipate. Because sometimes the Jesus that we come to is a Jesus that's of our own making. We'll still call him Jesus, but he's a Jesus that fits my preconceived notions, my preferences, and my standards. Sometimes we're confronted by the Jesus of the Bible. Sometimes that Jesus tells me to love someone that I don't think he should tell me to love. Sometimes that Jesus condemns my sin in a way that I would rather him excuse or maybe ignore. Sometimes Jesus tests the faith of his followers in a way where we would prefer to remain lazy, if we're honest. We've got to realize that even that testing is a gift. When Brandy was diagnosed with cancer back in October, how foolish would it have been for us to take those initial scans and hold them under the nose of the doctor and say, how dare you test for these things? Don't you understand how difficult it is to hear that? What a foolish response. What was the response? Thank God that you saw these things. Thank you for the testing. Thank you for that process that removes what was deadly. There are times when God will test our faith even bitterly to remove that which is not like him. And ultimately we need to see that that too is a gift. Second, there's no need for God to adjust his plans. God's plans have never needed an update or an adjustment. And that includes with his people. In fact, as Peter preaches in Acts 3, he says, uh, you killed the Holy One. You know that, right? He's talking to Jews. You killed him, Lord of life, and you ended him. But there's hope in his name. God used that to accomplish his salvation purposes. And then he goes on and calls, says, you're still sons of the covenant. And he calls on them to repent in light of all that God has promised those people. We could go through Romans 9 and chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11. And in Romans 11, where, God, where Paul says, has God then rejected his people? By no means. Have they fallen, so, has they stumbled so as to fall away? By no means. Make no mistake, a partial hardening has happened so that the Gentiles might be grafted into this thing called the people of God. But make no mistake that God intends to restore that which he has cut away. By the way, that is remarkably good news for you and I who will continue to stumble and fall in sin to know that God remains faithful to his promises when you and I often do not. Third, we have to think through what it looks like when our faith is tested because it will be. There are some of you here who have been praying for something for days, weeks, months, maybe even years, and it is a heartbreaking thing, and heaven is silent, or so it would seem that you pour out your heart to God and it seems as though there is no answer. Or worse, 
that the answer is exactly opposite of what you would want? What's the response? Continue to pray. Continue to approach the throne and be reminded of the truth of who God is. That's all that's wrapped up in this woman's answer. A persistent plea, not based on anything in her, but a persistent plea based on what she knows to be the character of this one called the Son of David. Let's pray. God, you're good, and you're good through the things that we would expect, and quite often you're good through the things that we would not expect or even want. This is a difficult passage, and yet, Lord, it's one when we find ourselves. We are the outsiders. We are those who, the vast majority of us, genetically have no claim to the covenant blessings of the people of Israel. And yet, Lord, in your power and in your grace and in your divine sovereignty and in your plan from the beginning of time, you chose to call men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation. And Lord, because we can read through in Revelation, we know that you will be faithful to those promises. That you will do exactly what you have said you will do. And that even today, as we gather here in our own little corner of the world, that you continue to call men and women to yourself out of every tribe and tongue and nation. What a marvelous thing to know that you are the God who is the hope of the nations. And so, Lord, let us be a people who continually praise your name and preach and proclaim your name. And we pray that you would bring your kingdom, that you would rule and reign over the earth, you would bring us into your presence, for we long to be with you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.